So before we dive into learning about taming our tongues, which might be a despairing subject for some of us, it would be good for us on this Good Friday to apply the gospel, that first step that Jerry Bridges gives us in our directions for dealing with our lingering respectable sins. So John Newton, you might remember, was the pastor that wrote the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. And he, you might remember as well, he also wrote a collection of pastoral letters to various people. So I went ahead and put on the back of your notes his letter, so that way you could follow along with me. And then I also wanted you to be able to take it home with you. And then later on, if you would just like something good to meditate on, on this Good Friday, this would be a lovely letter to share with others or just to be able to think back on yourself. So read it with me and we can, we can read it as though he's speaking to us because this particular letter was written to a woman despairing and struggling with depression in the middle of her trials. So let's read what pastoral advice he had for her. He said, my dear madam, they who would always rejoice in trials must derive their joy from a source which is invariably the same. In other words, from Jesus. Oh, that name, what a person, what an office, what a love, what a life. What a death does it recall to our minds. Come, madam, let us leave our troubles to themselves for a while and let us walk to Golgotha and there take a view of his. We stop as we are going at Gethsemane, for it is not a step out of the road. There he lies, bleeding, though not wounded, or if wounded, it is by an invisible and almighty hand. Now I begin to see what sin has done. Now let me bring my sorrows and compare, measure, and weigh them against the sorrows of my Savior. Foolish attempt to weigh a grain of dust against a mountain. We are still more confirmed at our next station. Now we are at the foot of the cross. Behold the man. Attend to his groans. Contemplate his wounds. Now let us sit down ere a while and weep for our crosses, if we can. For our crosses, nay, rather let us weep for our sins, which brought the Son of God into such distress. Agreed. I feel that we, not he, deserve to be crucified and to be utterly forsaken. But this is not all. His death not only shows our sin, but seals our pardon. For a fuller proof, let us take a, another station. Now we are at his tomb, but the stone is rolled away. He is not here, he is risen. The debt is paid and the surety just charged. Where then is he? Look up. Methinks the clouds part and glory breaks through. Behold a throne. What a transition. He who hung upon the cross is seated upon the throne. Thought I was going to make it. Hark, he speaks. May every word seek down deep into your heart and mine. He says, I know your sorrows. Yes, I appoint them. They are tokens of my love. It is thus I call you to the honor of following me. See a place prepared for you near to myself. Fear none of these things. Be faithful unto death, and I will give thee 
a crown of life. It is enough, Lord. Now then, let us compute. Let us calculate again. These scales are the balances of the sanctuary. Let us put in our trials and griefs on one side. What an alteration. I thought them lately very heavy. Now I find them light. The scale hardly turns with them. But how shall we manage to put in the weight on the other side? It is heavy indeed, an exceeding, an eternal weight of glory. It is beyond my grasp and power. No matter, comparison is needless. I see with the glance of an eye that there is no proportion. I am content. I am satisfied. Oh, I am ashamed. Have I been so long mourning, and this is all the causer? Well, if the flesh will grieve, it shall grieve by itself. The Spirit, the Lord enabling me, shall rejoice. Yea, it does. From this moment, I wipe away my tears and forbid them to flow. Or, if I must weep, it shall be tears of gratitude, love, and joy. The bitter is sweet. The medicine is food. But the cloud closes. I can no longer see what I lately saw. However, I have seen it. I know it is there. He ever lives full of compassion and care to plead for me above, to manage for me below. He is mine and I am his. Therefore, all is well. I hope this little walk will do both of us good. We have seen wonderful things today, wonderful in themselves and wonderful in their efficacy to compose our spirits and to make us willing to suffer on. Blessed be God for his unspeakable gift. I am, madam, your affectionate John Newton. So, it is with that vision of Christ on his throne, full of compassion and care, as we turn to look at our own hearts and tongues and focus our minds on the necessity of taming our tongues. We will first look at two thoughts about the tongue, then 10 provoking proverbs about the tongue, and then finally, two tips in our striving to tame the tongue. So number one on your outlines, let's talk about Two thoughts about the tongue. Two thoughts about the tongue. It's helpful to start with two general thoughts. So A on your outlines is a commanding thought. A commanding thought. I hope your fingers are well exercised this morning because we're going to be using them, flipping through our word. So go ahead and get out your Bibles and open up to Psalm 34, 13. Psalm 34, 13. It says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Steve Green has a great song on this verse. I'll let you Google it on YouTube when you go home. But... If you want your kids to know this, this verse immediately, let them listen to the song one time and they will not forget it. It's great. Keep your tongue from evil. John Gill tells us this points at the things wherein the fear of God shows itself. The tongue is an instrument of much evil, an unruly member and needs restraint. And it is from evil, not from good, it is to be kept. From evil speaking of God, from cursing and swearing, from evil speaking of men, reproaching and reviling them, from filthy speaking, from all obscene and unchaste words, and from all lying ones. For where such evil speaking is indulged, the fear of God cannot be in that man. And then that phrase, and your lips from speaking deceit, he says, this is hypocritical words speaking with flattering lips and a double heart. 
Some speak bad words in common conversation, although an evil habit and custom, and some speak good words but with an evil design, and in neither of them is the fear of God before their hearts, nor, excuse me, before their eyes, nor in their hearts. So ladies, as we think about this command to keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit, we need to ask ourselves, do we love the attention of being in the know and letting everyone else around us know that we know? Do we maybe be tempted to embellish stories so that they'll get the desired effect? Whether do we want somebody's astonishment, I can't believe that happened to you, or admiration from others, oh, you handled that so well, I can't believe they did that to you. What is your heart motive when you pick up your phone to, shall we say, get advice from your friend about the latest hurt your husband or your child or your friend has committed against you? Do we call with right motives? And ladies, it's happened to me. I've picked up my phone, been ready to dial, and then going, ah, my heart motive, I know it's wrong. I just... I just want somebody to feel sorry for me, to tell me, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. That was really mean of them. I just want somebody to coddle me. I don't want somebody to say, Rachel, you're being really sinful right now. You just need to hang up the phone and go hit your knees and repent. But is that what I want? No, I want somebody to just love on me and coddle me in my sin. And then the Holy Spirit is so gracious that he's stabbing my heart before I'm able to press send. So therefore, put it down a couple times. Not that I haven't had times where I have followed through it. That's how I know that's what I want. Because when I get it, I'm so happy. Like, yeah, I have it so rough. They know. They understand. Right? Is that not what our hearts just long for? Now, compassion is wonderful talking through and getting advice from people when you sincerely need it. There are times in our life that we're like, I, I don't know what right is. I want to do what's right, but I don't, I, I'm just, I'm, my emotions are so muddled. I'm so muddled. My thinking's so muddled. I truly want to do what's right, but I don't know what that is. Okay, that might be a good time to go ahead and get advice from someone who thinks biblically, and wants to see you look like Christ, that you know will love you enough to not let you wallow in your sin. So just things to think through as we're thinking through these things and keeping our lips from evil. Are we quick to use our words as weapons? We feel as though we have to stand up for our rights. So we lash out at anyone who might stand in our way. Do we shade our words so we look innocent and the other party looks wrong or stupid. That way, whoever we're talking to will, of course, come to the same conclusion that we did. We were right. This is not how we keep our tongue from evil. We will talk about a better way a little bit later. But for now, we just need to keep that command in the front of our mind, keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. So not only do we have this command to think about and remember, but we also have B on your outlines, a comforting thought. A comforting thought. So flip forward a little bit to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my laying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Oh, Lord, you know it all. Now, for some of us, this may strike a little bit of fear in our hearts. But as a believer, 
it should also bring great amounts of comfort. If the great God of the universe knows all our common everyday occurrences like rising up, sitting down, lying down, and our thoughts and our words before they are on a tongue, on our tongue, can we not trust him to work in our hearts to change us from the inside out? If he knows our words before they are on our tongues, then he is more than capable of doing the great work of transforming us into the image of his son, who is always patient, kind, and compassionate in his speech and all his actions. We can also trust him in every single circumstance. He knows when we are trying to do what is right and others seem to take it wrong. He knows all our ways. Sierra last week did a great job of challenging us. How are we viewing others, our judgments, and are we allowing our judgments to turn into slander? But ladies, what about the times that people judge and slander us and we truly haven't done what they're accusing us of? How should we respond? What if we try to work a situation out, but the person, the other person is not willing to reconciliate, to even talk sometimes? Ladies, Christ is our example. Listen carefully what 1 Peter tells us. This is 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, so Christ committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. So ladies, if you're facing a situation that there is true slander being done against you, reviling in return is not appropriate. We follow Christ's steps. What was his steps? He kept entrusting himself to him, the Father, who judges righteously. So we do not need to go around and slander in return or be obsessed with defending ourselves, demanding that everyone hear our side of the story and in the process, try to make the other person look bad. We need to entrust that our righteous judge, he sees, he knows, he knows our hearts and our motives And he will make it right in the end. But we need to be patient and entrust it to him. Might be here on this earth. It might not. It might be in the end day. But can we wait on him and his timing in those things? So here we have our commanding thought, keep our tongue from evil. And our comforting thought, God knows before even a word leaves our mouth. And now we are going to work our way through number two on your outlines, 10 provoking proverbs about the tongue. 10 provoking proverbs about the tongue. Now, I will say, our friend Jerry Bridges said there's over 60 different references. I'm going to be very kind this morning, and we're just going to do 10. So you'll see on your outlines, um, I created a chart for you guys to be able to follow along with me, because I know I'm about to thread throw 10 verses at you. So I want you to be able to kind of absorb what are we saying here? How are we contrasting? What does a tame tongue look like? What does an untamed tongue look like? According to these verses, I want us to kind of get a broad spectrum view of it so that we are thoroughly convinced. We definitely don't want that untamed tongue. Then we'll dive right into, okay, okay, I definitely don't want that. So therefore, how do I tame this tongue that's a fire in my little mouth? So 
Go ahead and turn in your scriptures to Proverbs 10.20. We will go ahead and turn to each one of those, these because I do want you to be able to read them aloud and we're going to be doing this together. Okay, so Proverbs 10.20 says, The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. So on your charts, the, a tame tongue is as choice silver. Talk to me. Great job. How about that untamed tongue? It's worth little. Exactly so. So in one of my commentaries, Walkie said, the heart produces the words and the words reveal the heart. So we've got a cyclical thing going on here. Our heart produced those words and our words reveal our hearts. So that phrase, the tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. Gill says, this is which utters things precious, pure, pleasant, and profitable. The doctrines of the gospel, the power of which he has felt upon his heart. The precious promises of it, which have been applied to him. And the rich experience of grace he has been favored with. Things pure and incorrupt, like silver free from dross, as the doctrines of grace fetched out of the minds of the sacred scripture, free from the dross of error. So here we have a tongue that as it speaks, it's like choice silver. God has done a work in this heart so that he keeps wiping away that dross and wiping away that dross so that when we speak, what kind of things are coming out of it? I love Charles Spurgeon said about John Bunyan, if you squeeze him and you cut him, he will bleed biblene, meaning you squeeze him, Bible's just going to come popping out. You cut him, it's just going to ooze out of him. That's what we need to be. We need to know our doctrines of the gospel and love them. They so affect us that it's woven through the very fabric of our everyday life. We don't live life like atheists who don't acknowledge God, don't revere him, don't think on him. But we're actively, intentionally bringing these things to mind so that it's on the tip of our tongue. Now, the heart of the wicked is worth little. Gil says this literally means it's good for nothing. The righteous man's tongue is better than the wicked man's heart. There is no good thing in his heart naturally. All manner of evil is in it and comes out of it. No sin can be named but what is in his heart. All that is in it is sinful. The thoughts of it and the imaginations of his thoughts are only evil continually. The affections are set on sinful lusts and pleasures. The mind and the conscience are defiled with sin. The understanding is darkened within it. And the will is obstinate and perverse and bent on it. His heart is wicked and exceedingly wicked. It is wickedness itself, very wickedness, desperate wicked, incurably so, without the grace of God. Such, therefore, know not their own hearts who say they have good hearts, and they are fools that trust in their hearts. This shows the necessity of regeneration and that power and efficacious grace is indispensable to it. What is he saying there, ladies? It amazes me. He's back from the 1700s, and yet he is saying these people sit there and say, oh, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. Literally, my heart's good. I'm good. I do good things. I don't need Christ. And yet he is saying everything in there is just through and through wickedness and needs that generating grace of God. So, tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. Let's move on to our next proverb, Proverb 10.31. So you just need to drop down in that same chapter a little bit. It says, the mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. So Proverbs sometimes does use very dramatic imaginative language to let us know the depth 
of the wickedness of this. So the mouth of the judge, just, excuse me, the mouth of the righteous, which is also translated just in uh, the KJV, flows with wisdom. Gill says, as a tree brings forth its fruit, hence speech is called the fruit of the lips, and wisdom is good fruit. A good man is comparable to a good tree whose mouth brings forth wise things in abundance, which are very pleasant and profitable, not worldly wisdom, much less devilish, not merely natural wisdom, but spiritual so here, it's, it's just this flowing with wisdom. It's over and over and over again. It isn't one time, boop, and then the wisdom's all run out. That's all I got for you. It's flowing with that wisdom. Now, let's talk about this perverted tongue. What does that mean? Well, our friend Noah Webster comes to the rescue. Perverted here means literally turned aside, hence distorted from the right. It's obstinate in the wrong. So it's disposed to be contrary or stubborn. So that perverted tongue, scripture tells us, it will be cut off. Now, back in those days, those that were caught to be blasphemous or if a servant was caught lying, it was tradition for their tongues to be cut off. So the readers of the Proverbs that would have been a very vivid thing for them to think about. But that is the severity of our sin. Those perverted tongues will be stopped one day forever and ever. And yet the righteous, the flow of wisdom will go on forever and ever. Okay, let's turn to Proverbs 12, 18. Flip over a couple of pages. Proverbs 12, 18. Oh, I'm sorry, y'all. Let's make sure we got it. So number two on your charts flows with wisdom and will be cut out. I'm sure probably all of you got that because you are good and, and smart women. All right, so let's go to Proverbs 12, 18. It says, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So that word rashly there means thoughtlessly. You're not thinking before you speak. So let's think through that, that rashly. It's like the thrusts of a sword. So those words are like sharp swords, cutting, wounding, dividing, killing. These are the kinds of words that slanders, backbiters, and those who tell tales, who grieve the innocent, wound their characters, destroy their good name and credit, and separate friends. So do we think, how are my words going to affect the hearer? And how is what I'm going to say, if I'm going to say something about somebody else, how is that going to affect them? Or are we just impulsive? Whatever's in the brain comes out the mouth. We don't put a lot of thought into it. We're just yucky, yucky, yucking. And we're not stopping to think. I love what Jody said. Just Take a drink of water if you need to. Just stop, drink. While you're drinking, think, think, think. And pray if need be, obviously. Because that will safeguard your mouth. It says that the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, how are they bringing healing? By making up differences, by reconciling people at odds through those lying insinuations of others. By speaking comfortable, cheerful, and refreshing words to the injured and the abused. Especially the tongue of a wise minister of the gospel is health or healing to wounded souls to whom they minister the gospel of the grace of God, which directs to Christ for healing, peace, pardon, righteousness, and eternal life. So ladies, that's what we want to bring when we're using our tongue Am I about to bring peace? Am I about to reconcile? Am I about to say something that will point people to Christ? That's a great way to guard our tongues from saying something. And instead of just thoughtlessly throwing out words and maybe even using them as a weapon on purpose. 
definitely need to guard our, our minds and hearts from that. So on your little outlines, number three, it brings healing, and that untamed tongue is like the thrusts of a sword. All right, number four, just drop down to the next verse. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. So, truthful lips being established forever. The man that speaks truth is and will be established in his credit and reputation among men. Truth, though it may be opposed, will prevail against lies and falsehood. The word of truth, the gospel of Christ, will stand forever. The ministers of truth and righteousness will continue to the end of the age. Christ, who is truth itself, abides the same today, yesterday, and forever. So if we are telling the truth in something, ladies, society out there more and more and more are trying to press us with lies, trying to convince us of the reasonableness of the argumentation. And yet we need to stand on the everlasting truth of God's word. Their lies will be wiped away one day, but the truth of Christ will stand forever. That lying tongue is for a moment. What does Gil tell us? The lie he tells is very short-lived. It is soon either discovered and he comes into contempt and disgrace and loses all his credit and reputation among men of honor and honesty. Or again, one day he will be before the righteous judge who will expose all things. We think sometimes ourselves, oh, I'm stuck. So if I just say a little lie, that'll kind of fix everything. But in reality... That fix is just for a moment. We're about to be caught in something or we don't want other people to know something about us. We spent a little bit too much money and we don't want the husband to find out. So we hide receipts. We shade our wording so we look better in front of other people even though it's not the honest truth. Those kind of lies are for a moment. Be sure your sin will find you out. But God's truth will be established forever. So on your chart, let's make sure we have will be established forever under number four. And then an untamed tongue is only for a moment. All right, let's keep trucking. Number five, Proverbs 15.2. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. So the tongue of the wise making knowledge acceptable, that can be a little bit like, what? But as the heart of a wise and good man is filled with useful knowledge, so he takes care to communicate it at proper times and seasons, in proper places, and to proper persons, adapting it to their case and circumstances. And this is what I love. This is Gail talking again. So as it may be for their comfort, edification, and instruction, and minister grace unto them, which is using knowledge, such an use of it makes it appear beautiful and lovely, decorates and adorns it. Isn't that great? So the wise person makes that knowledge acceptable. That woman knows how to use the knowledge that she has in order to edify, to comfort, to instruct. This is not a woman who is, I just don't know what to say to my friend that's hurting right now. Now, sometimes if we don't know what to say, it is better to hug them and pray for them and not just spout some words. But there are times we can equip ourselves. What does the word say? And that will give you the words to say, to comfort, to edify, to instruct your friend. Now, the mouth of fools spouting that folly. Their knowledge, as they take it to be, says Gil, is no other 
than follow, folly. This they throw out in great plenty, in a hurry, without fear or wit. They babble it out as water out of a fountain. Their hearts are full of it, and their mouths proclaim it. What a descriptive way to think through. Okay, if I have lots of words coming out of my mouth, and it's just not my north coming out because I talk fast sometimes. But it's truly, I'm just talking to talk. I'm just talking to fill space. Should I maybe capture that? Suppress that? Think. Don't be rash. Think before I speak. Are we filling our minds with good knowledge and using it wisely? Some of us love to learn, but we can often slip into a desire to let everyone around us know how much we really truly do know. We constantly need to examine our hearts. Are we saying what we are saying for the edification of our listeners? Are we trying to be helpful and encouraging? Is it an appropriate time and place? Or are our mouths just a bubbling fountain? Lots of words bubbling up, but not a whole lot of sense or use to any of the fountain of words pouring out. This is something also for us who nervous talk need to think about. Silence really isn't the evil or an enemy. Don't get so nervous about talking to someone that your mouth kicks into hyperdrive and a fountain of words comes tumbling out without regard to your listener. Be patient in your communication. You know what? They might need a moment to think about what you said before they respond. Again, silence is not an enemy. Silence is not evil. Give them a second. Especially, think of your listener. If God has knit them together as a quiet personality, then we need to give them space and be patient and don't fill every crack in the conversation in with words that don't have a lot of substance. It's okay. Give them a second. Let them think. Let them respond. We are all knit together very differently. So those of you who do have the quiet personality and maybe are a little slower in response, you got to have lots of patience with those of us who talk quickly. And those of us who talk a lot and little comes out, we need to be really patient and think. Did I give them a chance to formulate what they're going to say before I started talking again? Just, this is what you do. You stand there and you smile. And just give them a second. These poor ladies, let them think. Okay. Going on, so on our little outlines there, it makes knowledge acceptable, that tame tongue, and then an untamed tongue spouts folly. Trucking right along, number six, Proverbs 15.4, says, A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. So that soothing tongue, again, is that healing, wholesome and that perversion there is a crookedness. It's crooked dealing. So to have that benefit of such a man's company and conversation, Gil says, is like being in paradise. It's soothing. It's comforting. Such should be the tongue of any gospel minister, which delivers out the wholesome words of our Lord Jesus Christ, healing truths to wounded consciences. But that perversion, that perversion's impure and unchaste and unsavory and corrupt language, that does mischief in the spirits of men. Evil communications corrupt the heart and manners, defile the soul in the conversation, these and unsound doctrines eat as a canker sore. So often we don't stop to consider my tongue can crush other people. Usually we're just so worried about what? Me, self. We're not worried enough about or concerned. We're not concerned enough about how our words will affect other people before we say something. So those are things to be mindful of. Number six on your charts, that tame tongue is a tree of life and that untamed tongue crushes the spirits. Number seven, flip a couple pages to Proverbs 21, 23. It says, 
He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. Good to know. Matthew Henry said, those who would keep their souls must keep a watch before the door of their lips, must keep the mouth by temperance, that no forbidden fruit go into it, no stolen waters, that nothing be eaten or drunk to excess. They must keep the tongue also, that no forbidden word go out the door of the lips, no corrupt communication. By a constant watchfulness over our words, we shall prevent abundance of mischiefs, which an ungoverned tongue runs men into. Keep thy heart, and that will keep thy tongue from sin. Keep thy tongue, and that will keep thy heart from trouble. So what is he saying there? I love how he says it because it's nothing evil going in, nothing evil going out. And even he takes it down to the very, very practical level of no drunkenness, no gluttony going in, and also no corrupt speech coming out. So as we're thinking, as we're watchful, if we just, nothing simple in, nothing simple out, we will keep our souls from much trouble. So number seven on your chart, guards his souls from troubles. And then that untamed tongue, it leaves his soul unguarded from troubles. Okay, maybe just a page or two later. Number eight, Proverbs twenty-five, fifteen. This one says, by forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Now, scripture is not recommending that we try to use our tongue to break a bone. So what is it trying to tell us? One of, one of the commentaries just put it succinctly and beautifully. It said, gentleness and kindness overcome the most powerful and obstinate that gentle and kindness. So if we're trying to persuade, it says by forbearance, by patience, a, a ruler may be persuaded. We come to them by humble submission, patient waiting. Through those things, people can be persuaded. And a soft tongue breaketh the bone. That bone is representing hardness. So soft words, Gills tells us, or words delivered in soft language, gentle language, remove hardness and roughness from the minds of men and work upon influence and bend men whose wills are obstinate and stubborn and make them pliable. So David, with a soft tongue, worked on Saul, his enemy, and Abigail, by her soft language, turned the mind of David, who was bent on the destruction of Nabal. So just a couple different examples of how, in the Old Testament, God used somebody's patience, their gentleness in addressing, even with David, to his enemy. And yet he did not come across as harsh, as cruel, as even though David was in the right Saul was in the wrong, and yet he uses gentle persuasions as he's talking to Saul. Or Abigail, as she comes to David, and she bows before him and reminds David of God's goodness and God's faithfulness to David and what he's going to do, and that persuades David. So this proverb is good to keep at the forefront of our minds when we are speaking to our husband or maybe our boss about controversial subjects or a conflict. It is so much better to be patient, gentle, and kind in order to persuade and not harsh or demanding. We please the Lord by using that proper strength under control when approaching conflict. Are we gentle in the way we try to influence our husbands? Now, I, I'm saying gentle, I am not saying manipulative. So those are two different things. But instead of, you know, again, having to stand up for my rights and he just needs to listen to me and you're going to hear it. No, are we gentle? Are we patient? 
Are we willing to maybe leave the conflict and say, okay, I, I don't think we're going to resolve this right now. Could we please wait until another time and, and let me think and pray on this and us approach it again? And then truly think on it and pray over it. Seek the Lord. See if you're being sinful in the middle of it and you're the one that needs to bend. But if not, how much more winsome are you if you bring your argumentation in a gentle manner? Okay, so on your charts, we're only going to do the tame tongue overcomes the most powerful and obstinate. Then number nine, we're going to drop just a little farther down that same chapter, 2523. This one's fun. The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. Now, when I, I first read that one, I was like, I don't even know what they're trying to get at. So thank God for uh, commentaries that help explain different things. So um, that, that backbiting tongue, the backbiting is actually somebody who's doing it in secrecy. This is somebody who's sly and slanderous. They're going, they're showing you their happy face when they're in front of you, but they're going and saying something very, very different. So different commentaries did say two different things. They said the angry countenance was either the hearer of the backbiting slander, so that brought the angry countenance, or it was the victim of the backbiting slander. So once the victim heard of it, he had an angry countenance. So I personally lean towards the second interpretation. Since the north wind bringing rain was usually a nasty, cold surprise for farmers back then, the rain um, in that region usually came from the west wind. So, and it's really important when you live in an agricultural society where rain is coming from and when. So, just like finding out someone is ruining the hard work you've put into keeping your re reputation, so is that north wind, that surprising icy cold rain. So, remember what we said when we talked about anger, though. It can, anger can be righteous if you are more worried about the fact that God's will has been violated more than your own will has been violated. You should attempt, if at all possible, to reconcile with people if they are striving to slander you or are repeating wrong information about you. If not, refer back to 1 Peter 2. And our job is always to forgive. Not necessarily because they deserve it, but because God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. So on your outlines, that chart, number nine says brings an angry countenance. And then number 10, Proverbs 26, 28. I have 28, 26 on your uh, outline. Sorry, a little dyslexic there. It's actually going to be 26, 28. Yeah. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. So Gil tells us a man of a lying tongue is given to lying and hates those that are hurt and crushed by his lies. The reason why he hurts them with his lies is because he hates them. And having hurt them, he hates them being made his enemies and from whom he may expect and be in fear of revenge. Moreover, he hates those that are troubled at and disturbed with his lies. Have you ever seen a liar get caught in his lie? He's not usually grateful that he's caught. The initial is lots of anger. Why? Well, number one, because he got caught. But number two, he just hates those because he does not love them with a true biblical love. Then how dare you? Catch me in my lie. I just wanted to get away with it. So, and that flattering mouth working ruin, that mouth is working ruin both to itself and to the persons it's flattering. So it's pushing, it's driving away, and it also drives away people that can't bear its flatteries. And it pushes on such that are taken with it, both into sin 
and into ruin. So as we think about that, how are we using our mouth? Are we using it to flatter people to get what we want? Well, I'll say these nice things because I want to get on her good side because if I'm her friend, then I can do this, that, and the other. Oh, I want his ear, so I'll say these things to him because I want it to work just the right way. Or I want my husband to buy this, so therefore I'll be really nice to him today and I'll do these different things. And Oh, sugar plum, you're so manly. Not because you just want to compliment him and be kind to him, but because I want that thing. Or if you let me have that, I'll sleep with you tonight, right? Those flattering words, those words where you want to get what you want to get and you're willing to sin to get it. Those work ruin. So we've worked our way through two main thoughts about our tongues and then all 10 provoking proverbs about the tongue. But you might be at the point of, okay, Rach, convinced. What should we do to tame our tongue? Obviously, time will not prevent, to prevent time won't let us go through all that scripture has. So many good things. Jerry Bridges in our chapter did Ephesians 4.29. Beautiful verse. Definitely lovely. Definitely focus on that. But I just have two tips for taming the tongue. Number three on your outlines. Two tips for taming the tongue. Flip in your scriptures to Proverbs 31.26. We're going to go back to our virtuous woman. Let's just learn a tiny bit more from her. I think she needs to be taken Learn from her in tiny bites so we don't get overwhelmed all at once. But I love this scripture. Love how she just teaches us in two different phrases so much. So Proverbs 31, 26 says, She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So A on your outlines. How do I open my mouth in wisdom? So wisdom there, Noah Webster lets us know, is the right use or exercise of knowledge, the choice of praiseworthy goals, and of the best means to accomplish them. This is wisdom in act, effect, or practice. So we want to be able to communicate that wisdom. Obviously, God is all wise, so therefore if we repeat his thoughts after him, we are speaking wisdom. So it's also that practical, practical, knowing what's wrong. So in, in the little peoples, we, we teach that God is wise downstairs. So we teach that wise is knowing right from wrong and always choosing the right. So it's that practical, okay, I know what I should do, but it's not just the knowing of it, it's the doing of it. It's I am taking God's word, the commands he has commanded, or the things he has forbidden, and I'm applying it to my everyday life. That is wisdom. So how do we open our mouths in wisdom? Well, I turn to our friend Stuart Scott in that little booklet that we gave you guys um, for Ladies Retreat, the uh, Communication and Conflict Resolution. This is where I'm deriving um, this little nugget of of um, knowledge and wisdom. So Stuart Scott said, good communication is holy, purposeful, clear, and timely. So he also lays out six prerequisites to good communication. So we want communication that's holy, that's purposeful, that's clear, that's timely. So number one, you must want to please God more than anything else. You need to want to please him more than having your own way. You need to want to please God more than being right. I keep saying that one because that's the one I struggle with a lot. I really love being right. You must want to please God more than being vindicated. What they did was wrong. I, that was wrong, and it was against me, and how dare they? No. I want to please God more than anything. Even if it's the 20th time you have to remind your husband that the butter's on the top shelf of the refrigerator. We don't get to be impatient and just be like, you have lived in the 
same house with me for 20 years now. How do you not know where the butter is? I've never moved it. It's always in the same spot, right? But that's where temptation is so sneaky and sleeps in. And sleeps in. Well, it does sleep in, but it slips in as well. Where it's, oh, that temptation just be like, are you kidding me? Now, we might not say, are you kidding me out loud? But we sure can do it with our tone. <laughs> One look, babe. It's on the top shelf of the refrigerator. Now. Did what I just say, was that true? Yeah. Did I say it respectfully? No way. So those are the things we got to peel it back to our heart. And really, is it a sin if he forgets where the butter is? No, it's not a sin. So why am I being sinful in response? Right? Just, you know, Ron knows where the butter is. That wasn't a real example. <laughs> Just to clarify. <laughs> All right, so that number one, we need to please God more than anything else. Number two, you must be humble. Well, that'll work right in tandem with our little butter exercise there. We need to be humble. We don't get to rashly just react, thoughtlessly just fling it out. No reacting in pride but with patience. And we need to stay patient even if what you're saying is being misunderstood. You're like, I don't know how else to say it. I'm trying to communicate to you. I'm trying to do it well, but you're not getting it. We have to stay patient in our tone, in our actions, on our face all the time. Number three, you must be aware that you are accountable to God for everything you communicate. So this includes the simple patterns of communication that we went over in our chart. And ladies, we're accountable even when those pesky hormones are raging. And that's hard, right? We're all women. We know. That's very hard. They wipe you out. They make you feel really odd, unsensible things. And you know sometimes you're being unsensible, but you just can't work your way out of that conundrum of being unsensible. So literally, good communication might just be, honey, right now is not a good time for me to talk because I'm really the neurons. They're not connecting. My hormones are off the charts. Could we please wait for a couple days before we discuss this. Like, live with yourself in understanding. Make it pleasant for your husband to be around you. Communicate well. I have, probably TMI, but I, I happen to have a cycle that is never normal. I've never had a normal one. So I kind of have to guess when it's coming. Do I know when it's coming? Sometimes, because I'll be like, okay, I am crying at the drop of a hat. Hmm, okay. So I'll warn him, I think it's coming. So that way he knows, okay, it's not me. We're fine, we're fine. So if you are blessed with knowing when it's coming, work it out with your husband of, you know, sugar pie, I think those particular weeks, not a good idea. Or, or maybe you're menopausal, premenopausal. That'll do a number to you too, right? Yeah. Know yourself. Is there things you can do to help? Is there things you can do to avoid temptation? Lay hold of those things. But also communicate with your sweet husband so he knows what's going on. If you just go quiet, guess what he has to do? He can't live with you in an understanding way because he has no idea what's going on. He could have said something that hurt your feelings. This is him thinking, okay, did I say something that hurt her feelings? Did I do something? Did I not do something she told me to do? He's got to guess that while you're quiet. Don't make him play a guessing game. Tell him what's going on. With your children, that's helpful too. You don't have to go into crazy detail, but just let him know. Mommy's wrestling with our heart today, so I might be a little more quiet, but I want you to know it's not you. I'm not upset at you. I'm just going to be a little quieter so that way I don't sin. 
What a great example for your children to be like, oh, that's how I deal with that. Okay. So just a couple ideas. Number four, you must know how to listen. You must know how to listen. Again, we're going over those prerequisites to good communication. We have to know how to listen. If a person is not a good listener, they will most likely jump to conclusions. If you jump to conclusions, you will most likely say or do the wrong thing. Number five, you must know that communication involves more than just words. Yeah, this is where I get tripped up. Be very careful about the volume of your voice, the tone of your voice, facial expressions. Do you know sometimes I am expressing things on my face and I don't even know it? And I'll be like, what's that look? look. Hand gestures, sighing or snorting in disbelief, rolling the eyeballs, a look of amazement, like how could you not know? Or a look of disgust, body posture. If you have a hard time identifying those things, um, Ron has been very patient with me and has worked with me on my tone. Ask them, will you please let me know when my tone goes south? Because I won't hear it, but he will. So let's see, babe, right now. Really? Okay. Try it again. And force yourself to do it again. That's how you retrain yourself. Make yourself say the sentence that you just said again. This is also works brilliantly with children. If they speak disrespectfully to you and patiently to you, uh-uh-uh. Can we try that again, please? Make them say it again. If they get whiny, be like, I'm sorry, I don't speak whinies. Say that in English, please. It's one of those, train your children. Okay, keep going. I'm teaching the next point before we're there. Number six, we must be willing to put forth the effort and spend time it takes to communicate. Put forth that effort and spend the time it takes to communicate. Sometimes communication's wearing, right? You're exhausted. But ladies, we need to talk when we don't want to talk, and we need to listen when we don't want to listen. So as we think of those prerequisites, opening our mouth in wisdom, I need these things, these truths in God's scripture, and then be on your outlines. Do I have kindness on my tongue? Do I have kindness on my tongue? Um, our verse there in 31.26 says, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And that word teaching can also be translated law. So do I have a law over my tongue? That's kindness. Am I teaching that? That kind communication, Stuart Scott again says, it's gracious, it's easy, it's courteous, it's good, it's helpful. So instead of our anger being primed and ready to go, could we have kind words at the very tip of our tongues at all times? So instead of that low-lying anger just ready to pop out, could we strip that away and replace it with, what are things that I can be ready to say and to do that would show kindness to others? Do we ever sit down and premeditate kind things to say to those in our life? Or sometimes are we too busy formulating things we're going to say to get back at them and get our own way? Isn't it not true? Sometimes if we don't control our minds and our hearts, we're busy formulating, oh, if I'd only said this, that would have won the day. That would have showed him. No, why don't we take that time instead, strip away those evil thoughts, and in its stead, how can I show them kindness. Mary Beakey in her book, A Law of Kindness, says, a beautiful oil painting is made up of thousands of small brushstrokes. Similarly, the small acts of kindness that we wives carry out are the brushstrokes that make up a beautiful marriage. So something to think about when we're 5, 10, 20, 40 years in, 
It is so simple to just let those simple kindnesses slip on by. Maybe buy a little treat or a new tool for him to show him you're thinking of him. Offer a back scratch or just a hug as you walk through the house. Thank him for the little things he does around the house. Mary Beeky also says, without a principle of kindness in our hearts, we allow familiarity to breed contempt. We act nice in public because we want to preserve our reputations, but we are irritable and cruelly honest at home, hurting those we really love the most. We take our loved ones for granted, and we take our frustrations out on them without restraint. So as we're thinking through, is the overall tenor of my life, would somebody look at me if they could see me at home where I'm most comfortable, I'm in my jammies, I'm drinking my coffee, would they say, now there's a kind woman. Kindness is on her lips. She even teaches kindness to her little ones. And ladies, we need to take the time and still in those little ones, teach kindness to them. And you might say, but Rachel, isn't that hypocritical? No, obedience is never hypocritical. And scripture says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. So train them in those ways. If you have to, take them and mimic it. Okay, you guys, let's try that again. But this time, be kind to each other as you try to work that out. So as we move through Good Friday and remember the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf, Let's strive to use our tongues in a way that pleases him. Let's strive to always open our mouths in wisdom and let kindness always be pouring out from our lips to others. He is worthy of all our striving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be so worthy in our sight. We thank you for your sacrifice that you have covered each and every of our sins. Lord, the sins of our tongue is many. Lord, I pray that we would be different. We as women would not be gossips, slanderers, backbiters, but that we would have wisdom flowing out from our mouth and kindness on the tip of our tongue, ready to be shown, not because we want to look good, but because we want others to see our good works and glorify you in heaven. Lord, might that be our heart's cry as we thank you this Good Friday and as we look forward to celebrate your resurrection on Sunday. Thank you, Lord, for how you're going to work. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.